adversaries are relentless, and they're only getting smarter, faster, and more sophisticated. Knowing their game is the only way to beat them. That's why we're here. Learn what it takes to protect against even the most sophisticated attacks. Welcome to the Adversary Universe podcast. Hello and welcome again to another amazing episode of the CrowdStrike Adversary Universe podcast. You're joined by our head of intelligence, Adam Myers, and me, Christian Rodriguez, field CTO of the Americas. We're going to talk about some fun stuff today. What do you think, Adam? Let's do it. What makes these adversaries so successful in their campaigns? And I think a lot of this has to do with vulnerabilities. And so today's episode is going to focus on vulnerability intelligence, what that means to various industries, really how CrowdStrike plays such an impactful role within the vulnerability intelligence space, and why everyone is running around always chasing down the latest patches for everything Microsoft. We are going to spend some time talking about how your businesses are impacted by that. And then it's a very high level overview of what vulnerability intelligence is. So Adam, I know this is actually a topic that's near and dear to your heart, right? We have a lot of content on this. We do a lot with intelligence on vulnerabilities. In fact, a lot of the reports that we have focus on different adversaries in different geolocations, targeting different industries. I know we, we reference that vulnerabilities a lot in, in our reports, but go ahead and give, give us an overview of why this is so important to to the way that we publish intelligence and in the industry in general. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that uh, the vulnerability is in many cases how these threat actors get in. Increasingly over the last year, it's been either coming in through some vulnerability that's being exploited on an edge device. Um, there's no shortage of issues with things like Microsoft Exchange and some of the other external facing services that organizations use, or it's credentials, right? You know, stolen credentials, fished credentials, or compromised credentials in some way. Those are kind of the, the two big ways that, to get into an organization. And, you know, there's been an increase every single year, I'd say, of vulnerabilities that are out there. And organizations face an incredible challenge of trying to figure out just how to prioritize those vulnerabilities in terms of where do you start, right? Mm -hmm. And so entire classes of products like enterprise attack surface management have come out to let you say, take a look and kind of see where where your exposures are and, and what, what are you kind of showing to the threat actor that they might take advantage of. I think, you know, I'm a very big fan of EASM. I mean, prior to CrowdStrike, I did a little stint at a company that shall remain nameless that was actually really big on external attack surface management. And that was interesting, right? To, to have the ability to scan the web and identify assets that are hanging off of the DMZ and then the ser services that are running within that, you know, that application or that server and then giving you vulnerability data. But clearly there's no end in sight, right? I've seen, I've seen customers managing, you know, they have entire teams focused on just vulnerability management. Why, why is it such a burden, right? To manage this, right? There's a volume of vulnerabilities out there. Like, what, why is that? I think, I mean, last year there was something like 26,000 plus vulnerabilities that were identified, you know, in, in terms of uh, just the things that we were tracking at CrowdStrike. Mm -hmm. Over 4,200 were critical. Oof. Over 10,000 were high. So there is, there, there's no shortage of things that are out there. And, and any organization has just so much software. This is why supply chain is such a concern too, right? Because there is so much software out there and so many applications and things that people are using that they might not even know that they're using as you start thinking about things like shadow IT. And so the risk 
is in many cases unquantifiable (laughs) if they don't have comprehensive visibility into what they're even using. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You just mentioned critical, right, or high and uh, severity, which I think is also very crucial to any vulnerability management team. And so so many of you listening may be familiar with uh, different severity uh, ratings and scoring methodologies. But let's quickly for our listeners that are maybe newer to this, let's explain what the severity ratings look like out there, right? So I know that the more common one is, is it CVSS. Yeah, so CVSS is part of the CVE itself. That is, I you know, the way I think about it, there's three ways that you can, and the reason that you understand the criticality of a vulnerability is to kind of prioritize the patching. You want to prioritize patching because you can't patch everything. As I said, there was, you know, over 25,000 vulnerabilities last year that were identified. So you can't really patch everything. So you have to have some sort of prioritization. And CVSS is one of the things that people will kind of start with, right? It's it's the probably the the one that most people would gravitate towards is the common vulnerability scoring system, and and so it is a useful metric. And that's really about the criticality, the severity, the impact. If that vulnerability is exploited, what happens? The second way that I've seen organizations prioritize their patch management is about prevalence, how how much of this is out there, right? And and so you might be balancing between a high severity, you know, from a CVSS perspective or a medium severity, but you have more of the exposure from the medium ones. So you'll mm-hmm. prioritize patching based off of prevalence. The way I prefer to think about it, and I think a lot of our customers that consume our intelligence and our vulnerability intelligence like to think about it is which vulnerabilities are actively being exploited. Mm-hmm. Just because a vulnerability is published, just because a vulnerability's impact is potentially critical or high, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's being used in the wild. Sometimes you'll see chaining of vulnerabilities together. So, you know, we think about like proxy logon and some of that stuff. There was multiple vulnerabilities that were chained together. And if you look at in 2022, there was something like 31% of those vulnerabilities that we identified were associated with Microsoft that were exploited in the wild. And that's that's pretty high, but you also have to remember that sometimes they were chaining multiple vulnerabilities together to get the affected outcome or the, the intended outcome. And so I prefer to take a look at which threat actors are targeting my vertical, which threat actors are targeting my geographic locations, Let's create a composite of that threat. And then let's pivot from there to which vulnerabilities are these threat actors exploiting? Because that's the number one concern that I would have for my organization is, you know, if I know that there's a bunch of threat actors that I don't care about exploiting something that I don't have, I'm not going to waste a lot of time trying to go find it and patch it. I'm going to be more focused on if there's a particular, you know, Chinese nation state threat actor or or e-criminal group that tends to target my vertical explicitly, let me focus on patching that first and then worry about the other stuff after that. Sure. So, you know, with better contextual uh, relevance on the threat, right? And then associating that with real world risk and actual campaigns, you know, now I can prioritize what needs to be patched versus what is more of a hypothetical, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, the other thing to go back to the prevalence argument, which is also a valid one, all three are valid, right? Sure. But in 2022, we saw that the average exploitation from when a vulnerability was announced, right? It might not have been exploited in the wild, but a vulnerability was discovered and a patch was issued. Then it becomes an end day. Right, which is to say, end days after the vulnerability was identified and a patch was available, 
is when that vulnerability gets exploited. The average time from when a vulnerability is published and, and the first in the wild exploitation was about 23 days. Oh, wow. So end day is it's a term that again you know we're using it naturally is it is it picked up by the industry at this point okay yeah okay so the amount of time from the publication of the CVE right to when it's actually exploited or patched in terms of what are we seeing right so like what are you seeing on average I don't know if you're getting statistics on when a CVE is published right what are you hearing from enterprises with respect to the you know of course naturally prioritization is very key but how long before they actually start patching these systems. The vendor or the enterprise? Let's start with the enterprise. When are you seeing? So, I, I mean, end day is a little bit of an amorphous kind of bushy subject, right? So some people might say end day is when a vulnerability is known, but there may or may not be a patch available. Mm. So, you know, in that situation, I think it is, I've also heard people say things like half day, but, you know, let's say it's a vulnerability that's known mm-hmm. and there's a patch available but it wasn't being actively exploited and then somebody starts actively exploiting it in that situation it should be uh everything needs to stop and that needs to be the number one priority sure but naturally operationally that's going to vary by every customer and you know we're talking about you know risk acceptance and tolerance and you know we could spend like another episode talking specifically about you know the impact of your business how patches sometimes aren't necessarily an easy button but you know we're seeing lots of it right i think there's no there's no slowing down. So, Adam, in the last couple of months, which vulnerabilities have gotten the most attention? <laughs> well, the Move It one's been taking up a lot of time recently, which is the uh, managed file transfer service. I think is te- technically what it's considered. The impact of it was very prevalent because you know there was number, you know, something like fifty some odd organizations were leaked to the COP site, and the USG was hit. So, there's been a lot of attention on things like Move It. Let's talk about vulnerabilities that are actively being exploited in the wild, right? So we know that enterprises are prioritizing or at least reprioritizing how they respond to these vulnerabilities or at least patching them based upon what's most impactful to their business and, you know, the context on how these real world exploits uh, or rather vulnerabilities are being exploited should ultimately drive prioritization, as you mentioned, Adam. But, you know, let's talk about more notably, there seems to be a lot of focus put into Microsoft products, right? Every time I work with uh, an enterprise customer on deploying our vulnerability management tool, right? We see vulnerabilities attributed to Microsoft stacks of tools kind of going through the roof, right? What are you seeing with Microsoft on your side, Adam? So from a Microsoft perspective, they've been having a bit of a crisis of trust, I think we would say, from a vulnerability perspective. 2022, I think we saw something like 1,200 patches from Microsoft, 28 of which were zero day. What we've seen as well, you know, so you got the the patches uh, and I think that's worth pointing out, right? Like 28 zero day is kind of a, an alarming number, but 1200 patches. And so this brings into view the concept of the end day, which is a vulnerability that is known and there may or may not be a patch available for it. But that's once the vulnerability is known, the cat's out of the bag and somebody's working to exploit that vulnerability. And in 2022, the average time from a vulnerability disclosure to in the wild exploitation was about 23 days. So, you know, not to say that all of those 1200 plus vulnerabilities are necessarily exploitable or would lead to remote code execution, but, you know, you can chain these things together. And something that we noticed across 2022 is that 31% of the total exploited vulnerabilities were associated with Microsoft. 
which, you know, that's obviously an alarming number, but you also have to consider that some of those might be chained together, like two or three of these things in order to attain remote code execution or arbitrary file write or, or some sort of privilege escalation. So there's a number of factors that go into that, but you know, that's, that's what I would say about Microsoft is that, you know, they've, they've got a lot of products, they've got a lot of vulnerabilities and 20 zero days is pretty significant when you think about how many people are relying on Microsoft products. So Adam, as head of intelligence, tell me what is the value of vulnerability intelligence? There's a lot that you can kind of understand about threat actor behavior from the vulnerability intelligence. You know, so I'll, I'll touch on a couple of things. One, I think vulnerability intelligence from a utility perspective for our customers is that it can be used to inform the prioritization of patching, right? If, if you know which threat actors are targeting you or companies like you through our other threat intelligence, then you can kind of work backwards and say, okay, I know that these five threat actors very commonly target me. What vulnerabilities are they using? And let's make sure that I can kind of cut off that access route for them. So I'm going to prioritize that patching. That's one thing that I think is super helpful and very easy to kind of conceptualize and, and implement for organizations. One of the other things that I think is super interesting is the kind of the forensics of the vulnerability or the exploit itself. Looking at the tool marks, looking and trying to understand how was this vulnerability created? Was it, you know, I kind of think of Silence of the Lambs when, they, when they're looking at the insect that they pulled out of the lady's throat and they're like, oh, something loved and cared for this thing, right? So like, is it artisanally created and, and they kind of went and did delicate reverse engineering and, and did a, a very complex vulnerability analysis and, and, and developed the exploit? Or is it maybe something that came out of fuzzing and it's, a, you know, there's tool marks that, that could be potentially indicative of the fact that this was, you know, a fuzz run and, and they were kind of just using the, the garbled data to trigger the vulnerability and then, and then weaponize it. So there's things that you can learn by looking at the vulnerability itself or the exploit itself. And then, you know, the proliferation of that bug or that exploit, knowing that one Chinese threat actor group had that vulnerability or that exploit and then started using it. And then it showed up in another group where they working together, looking at the two exploits that were used, were they simultaneously developed at the same, you know, me, me, meaning like they independently created it or was there some shared tooling between those two groups? We've seen instances where something has gone from the e-crime world into the targeted intrusion space, which would, you know, indicate that a, threat actor either lost control of the exploit to a nation state or they sold it or, or gave it to them. So there's some really interesting things that you can derive by kind of zeroing in on the exploit and how it was built and how it, it, it made its way across the globe. All right. So we've been having a really great conversation about vulnerabilities and to highlight some more data points that I think are going to be really important to our listeners, I wanted to invite uh, a really important guest to this episode. Basically, solutions engineer and threat advisor have actually done work with her personally on the Adversary Universe Tour last year. Welcome to the show, Miss Nina Padaville. How are you today? I am great. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for coming on to the show. I know uh, you and I have had, we've done several briefings. You actually did a Gartner keynote, didn't you, last year? I did. I did. Some threat intelligence stuff, and I think that was... Very well received. I remember at the Gartner booth, everyone was coming up to you and 
you know, I thought they were going to be there to see me and hear me do my thing. And everyone just ignored me. And I was just like, who is this Nina? But <laughs> I appreciate you coming on the show. And, uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, some of the things you've done here at CrowdStrike before we get into some some of the vulnerability data points. Yeah, it's it's been a winding path. I actually joined CrowdStrike four years ago on the services team. And the reason I was hired was to help build out threat intelligence programs for our services customers. And so I did that for a couple of years. I also helped out with like intelligence and incident response preparedness. It's like tabletop exercises and then evaluating, you know, how SOCs were being run and what the larger cybersecurity program looked like in terms of their maturity and their, their timeline for the next couple of years. And then from there moved into more of a Intel focused role as an Intel advisor supporting public sector. So that entailed a lot of threat intelligence briefings for two years, including heavy amount of public speaking, which got me very familiar with being in front of crowds. Nice. But uh, at a certain point, I realized that I really want to focus more on our suite of the platform. And so most recently, I moved into a solutions engineering role. Nice. Well, congratulations. It sounds like Thank a fun you. role. I've done the solutions engineering thing for quite some time, and it can be a lot of everything, right? So I'm sure exposure with respect to not only the platform, but customer challenges is actually really fun. So uh, speaking of customer challenges, let's talk about vulnerabilities. In this episode, we've been covering a lot of the trends and some of our observations on vulnerability intelligence. Uh, Adam Meyer shared some really great feedback on how areas like disclosures for vulnerabilities, you know, have, have been interesting, and, you know, in terms of timing and the impact to different organizations and enterprises. But I don't really want your take on, on a few areas. So for example, like what would you foresee in your experience so far, especially with your access to the intelligence that we publish? What do you think is more dangerous to the average enterprise, like a zero day or a known vulnerability? Yeah, that's a good question. I'd say that for my historical precedents, I probably had more activity threat briefing on zero days because, you know, they get way more publicity. They're way more mysterious. They're way more intimidating. There's really no way to plan for them. But I'd say that to the average enterprise, a known vulnerability uh, affects the, the largest number of customers that we deal with. You know, mm -hmm. it requires a lot of specialized knowledge and resources for an adversary to even discover and research and weaponize a zero day in the first place. And then on top of that, you know, once they start to weaponize that zero day, they increase the chances of being detected. And those same targeted, you know, victims understanding that that's a vulnerability at getting publicized and then, you know, mitigating controls getting put in place. Mm -hmm. But compare that to, say, like a known vulnerability where a vendor or, you know, a hacker might disclose a vulnerability affecting a product. Now adversaries basically have the ability to conduct their own research and basically develop exploits that might be even tied to information that was released by that vendor. Mm, so, like, let's imagine they might push changes to their, say, like open source code or release a patch that talks about certain configurations that are required they're basically giving out threat intelligence to the adversary that give them, you know, more information to further exploit those weaknesses and capitalize on those efforts before a patch might even be issued. Oh, wow. So it's almost uh, taking the lazy man's route, out, right? Saying, I'll <laughs> wait for the white hacker to yeah. basically post this update and I'll just kind of start my work from there versus like a very well organized e-crime group or maybe even nation state group that finds that has the resources rather to invest in those zero days that could be kind of a, a silver bullet that they burn through very quickly. Yeah, exactly. And um, from like a numbers perspective, I think the majority of vulnerabilities disclosed last year were even zero days. They were known vulnerabilities. Oh, very interesting. During the session, Adam was discussing 
the average time between vulnerability disclosure and in the wild exploitation, I think it was roughly 21 to 23 days, I think, right? Something to that effect. Yeah, 23, I believe. 23 days. With respect to like the popular vulnerabilities, right? Like was what, what are the commonalities that you're seeing, right? And how is it, how are they having so much appeal to these actors with respect to their development cycles? Or? Yeah, that's a good question. So our Intel team did a study on some of the most commonly weaponized vulnerabilities, and that's where we came up with that uh, 23 day metric. Mm-hmm. But from this research, they basically found that the type of vulnerability, like the root cause or weakness that it was exploiting, strongly correlated with how quickly it was weaponized. Mm-hmm. So if you want to even like reduce it to miter attack techniques and tactics, adversaries were more likely to adopt vulnerabilities that were exploiting like public facing applications for initial access, okay. as well as vulnerabilities that achieved privilege escalation over any other. So I'd say that that piece of information really closely aligns what we've been seeing for the past one to two years in terms of, you know, where adversaries are focusing on getting their initial access in the first place. Interesting. I think maybe for another episode, I'd love to get some some data points on how long it takes organizations to really start applying patches, because I've met with so many enterprises that have issues with things like risk acceptance and understanding which applications they need to prioritize patching for or which applications basically they aren't even allowed to patch or update because of issues with you know business processes being broken. May, there may be a very specific application that runs a very part of their business in terms of you know the way that that business generates revenue and updating that application could break a lot of things or have such a major impact to the business that they now have to create an appetite for risk tolerance, right? Basically like, hey, we can't, we're gonna have to simply just put some compensating controls around this in order to ensure that if this application is exploited, that we have a way to to mitigate it without having to update the software itself. And so that's an interesting conundrum, if you will, where now a business is measuring impact of business versus risk appetite and then, you know, creating some type of monetary value for that. And those obviously applications are going to vary by industry. But, you know, maybe you could share also what type of trends we've seen across other vendors, right? Because there may be applications, again, that businesses have to build these risk acceptance guidance for or guidelines for. But, you know, what are you seeing in terms of the types of other vendors, right? And types of software or applications out there that are that are being the most targeted when it comes to vulnerabilities? In terms of vendors that are being the most targeted with exploits, Microsoft definitely was the most impacted. Mm. And I think that would probably really closely correlate with how the audience sees headlines about vulnerabilities these days. Sure. You know, they made up around 30 or so percent of total exploited vulnerabilities out of the different vendors that we tracked with this research. Oh, wow. And something I'll mention, too, with that is that a large part of that number is tied to exploit chains that involves multiple Microsoft vulnerabilities. So it wasn't necessarily that there were like hundreds of different distinct vulnerabilities, but rather there were maybe like dozens or so that were combined and used to be more impactful via that exploit chain. That's a that's a big number, right? Yeah. Okay, so what else outside of Microsoft? What else are we seeing? I'd say some other things to consider. Like we saw that vulnerabilities that targeted the Linux operating system saw the most rapid exploit development timelines. Mm. So like whereas Microsoft, for some of the vulnerabilities targeting Windows and Exchange, took like on average 37 days to come up with that exploit. For certain Linux vulnerabilities we saw last year, there were two of them from 2022 and one from 2021. It took on average two days to weaponize. Oh, wow. It's a massive turnaround in comparison to, say, 30 days, which is over a month. That's a very short amount of time for uh, a defender to prepare against, right? And so that's interesting. So so in terms of other categories, though, right, so Microsoft obviously having more of a chain, you know, type of or exploit chain 
when it comes to the patches that that are impacting multiple iterations of their software across you know different systems you know in linux systems you know what about what about categories right you know i know that i've read a report recently on a few remote services being exploited you know what what else are you seeing on 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 types of applications i'd say the other one uh for thinking about categories that experience rapid deployment of these exploits a lot of vulnerabilities tied to edge devices were targeted so like vpn products mm. Uh, there were a couple tied to Fortinet and Cisco and F5 last year that saw really rapid weaponization within five days, so less than a week, but still a bit more than the, the Linux-related vulnerabilities I just mentioned. Sure. Beyond that, in terms of types of vulnerabilities, you know, I mentioned actors are looking to adopt exploits that support initial access and privilege escalation. And so those were the two types of tactics that saw the shortest period of weaponization. So anything tied to like improper access controls, or improper privilege management, like any type of inadequate restriction to uh, a, a certain portion of an application, that was something that was very appealing to adversaries uh, to develop, you know, their time and resources to develop an exploit for. So, you know, you know, what's interesting is, you know, patching is an interesting topic because, you know, it's, it, I feel like every organization we work with seems to be kind of chasing their tail with patching again, and there's timelines that vary by business and based upon the weaponization timeframe, as you mentioned, that can easily vary given the nature of what the vulnerability is applicable to, right? Microsoft versus Linux, for example, or VPN products versus, you know, some other type of remote access tool or, or like remote desktop-like tool. We work in an industry where a lot of the pressure and a lot of the blame for, you know, the lack of patches is put on the security teams, right? It's basically the equivalent of saying someone's smashing your window because the manufacturer of that specific glass didn't make that window like temper-proof or whatever, right? And all of a sudden you as a car owner are being blamed that, hey, you should have had bulletproof glass and that's why your window got smashed and your purse got stolen. And all of a sudden you're, you know, you're being blamed because you couldn't protect your car or whatever assets were inside your car. But it's interesting that, you know, businesses have to kind of face a very similar challenge where, you know, the minute an adversary uses some type of vulnerability to their advantage and they get into your organization, and they do something right? It's a lot of finger pointing. And so I'd love your feedback on effective ways for patching or like, you know, what's your opinion on this, right? Because it feels like we, we all know that patching alone isn't necessarily the, the answer. Like what's what's your what's your take on just the overall patching process and what other compensating controls would, would you recommend for, for companies to have? I think that it all stems back to how a vulnerability management program is run. And mm. historically, yeah. a lot of organizations are still reliant on scheduled scans. Mm. So if you think about that you know, metric from earlier that it takes on average 23 days between when a vulnerability is disclosed and then when it's, you know, exploited in the wild. That's, you know, a little over three weeks. And depending on the enterprise you're in, you're dealing with a much longer patch cycle that's tied to a, a much more, how do I say, like a spread out vulnerability scanning schedule. Sure. And so let's just say that, you know, your scanning schedule missed the mark of that 23 day period by a couple of days. And now, you're behind on finding whether or not you're vulnerable to the most recently disclosed vulnerability. And so I think that's where, you know, a lot of enterprises get stuck in, in terms of the timing of how they try to catch these vulnerabilities. And then, of course, that just gets pushed downstream to anyone that's responsible for owning those applications and determining change controls and then pushing those change controls through the right approval processes. So a long-winded answer of saying, I think it just requires a lot of different stakeholders to reconsider how they're approaching vulnerability management and, and hygiene. Sure. I'm sure that even the, you know, even with that said, even with patching, you know, and just to maybe underscore that concept of hygiene, I know there's a lot of enterprises that may focus on the concept of patching or updating software, but there's still this very 
thick underlying issue of just overall, you know, misconfigurations on systems, right? And and, mm-hmm. and maybe policy exceptions that have have been abandoned, or just you know, a hygiene of not even knowing systems that are out there, right? And so the concept of patching almost becomes irrelevant if you if you're not privy to understanding where all of your assets are and what versions of whatever application are actually running, or maybe even understanding the dependencies of software that within the applications that you've deployed, right, throughout your environment. We saw that with Log4j, for example, where, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of other tools that were leveraging very specific Log4j libraries didn't feel the need to disclose vulnerabilities because they felt like, you know, the overarching Log4j vulnerability was kind of all-encompassing. And that actually led to a lot of organizations saying, oh, I don't think I have any issues with this. And meanwhile, there's other applications that are still using that Log4j library and, and they were very susceptible. That's actually, it's funny you mentioned that. There was um, a customer we were working with a couple months ago, I'd say like a couple weeks ago, actually. Mm-hmm. And we were showing them how to use our spotlight capability, which is built into the sensor, which they already had deployed to figure out what their vulnerability hygiene looks like. And so we had a bunch of security folks on the call who owned and operated the sensor, the Falcon sensor. And they were referring to a test that they wanted to run with us on the call live, just to double check that, you know, they actually were in fact clean from any log4j potential infections and, and vulnerabilities. And so they prefaced it with this fact that in December when log4j was announced, their, you know, vulnerability management team and the the folks responsible for the impacted servers were a part of this long process to go test and run scans and figure out where they were impacted and then push out the patches accordingly and just have this pretty well-coordinated and, you know, neat operation to get those vulnerabilities resolved. And so on this call, they're like, let's just, you know, let's just do a quick logic check and use Spotlight and figure out where there is luck for shell. And we're assuming that we won't actually find any instances of it. And lo and behold, via Spotlight and even through our ability to hunt our telemetry in their environment, we very quickly found that there were instances of that still very much active in their environment because their scheduled scans didn't pick up on it. Oh, well. And so I think it's just another example of hygiene sometimes requires multiple stakeholders and multiple angles to approach sometimes, you know, very complex, vulnerable products. And even, you know, when you think about patching, to bring it back to your earlier question, a lot of the time a patch alone isn't really sufficient. So in some cases, the patch requires a, a certain manual configuration as well. So Zero logon from three years ago is a really good example of that, where even with the patch being deployed, enforcement mode was also required in order to fully mitigate the, the vulnerability there. And that was a function that wasn't even configured by default with that specific piece of software. Sure. So regardless of patching, if you know these administrators didn't read the fine print and see that they had to actually you know enable enforcement mode, they'd still be vulnerable to zero logon related exploits. Oh, wow. Well, that's a really good one. I've definitely seen organizations apply patches and not realize that they have to, in addition to the patch, they also have to modify a very specific configuration file or even something as basic as rebooting the operating system in order for the patch to yeah. you know, be in full effect. Then there's this misconception that they're protected, right? And they're still as susceptible to that vulnerability as they were maybe a week even prior to applying that patch. So that's interesting. It, you would think that this would be something that organizations catch on to. And it, it, I, I see it even to this date, right, where there's, to your point, there's just certain things that are missing yeah. before the patch is ultimately, you know, fully in effect. There was another one. I, I actually wasn't planning on bringing this up because it seemed so old in terms of vulnerabilities that no, have been published. But let's go for it. <laughs> it's so funny. I, I was doing like a little bit of, of research to confirm that it's worth bringing up. And essentially, there was this vulnerability impacting Telerik software from 2019. Mm. Back then and up till 2021, it was exploited by hacktivists and nation state actors and then, you know, some e-crime groups. 
but it's essentially a, a 2019 vulnerability that's dependent on two older vulnerabilities from 2017 to accomplish you know, remote execution. Lo and behold, I was doing a little research trying to see if it's even worth bringing up today. Consequentially enough, our managed threat hunting team, Overwatch, as well as Falcon Complete, basically found multiple instances of this vulnerability being exploited last summer and even as recently as this year, oh, wow. uh, targeting a bunch of different industries from media and financial services to telecom. So you know, vulnerabilities from 2019 that require an exploit chain for vulnerabilities from 2017 are still being used today to target organizations globally. Oh, wow. That's really, really great feedback. So, Nina, I know you've been part of the threat intelligence team here for some time. You've, you've done lots of briefings. Tell me, you know, just kind of high level, why having intelligence at the heart of your vulnerability management program is so important? I think what it comes down to is efficiency. You know, a lot of organizations are running these vulnerability management scans that will produce thousands of results every time they conduct a scan. And I've seen that for pretty much every organization that I've supported with, you know, services engagements. And as a, a solutions engineer recently, there is just a prolific amount of vulnerabilities out there. And without the context as to whether or not an adversary is actively exploiting that vulnerability, it's just irrelevant. Sure. All of that information is just irrelevant if there's no active threat from an adversary. And the thing to remember too is that these things change over time. So a, a vulnerability that isn't being exploited today might suddenly be in a month or two. And having that intelligence overlay is the difference between you know an incident and not. Yeah. So knowing your adversary, understanding the way that their tradecraft evolves around these vulnerabilities and you know what they're actively exploiting, absolutely very key points to helping with prioritizing and scoring the vulnerabilities that you're running across your organization. So Nina, I just <laughs> want to thank you again for coming on the show. I really appreciate the feedback. Pleasure to have you and can't wait to, to have you again. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to our podcast and head over to CrowdStrike.com forward slash adversaries to learn more about the many bad guys we track. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Adversary Universe podcast. This is the Adversary Universe podcast.